Hello and welcome to another edition of England Cricket on 99.94 with me, uh, Daniel Norcross, TMS commentator, broadcaster, occasional scribbler, and uh, the the whiff-waff, the big boy, the man at PA who tells you everything you need to know about cricket with a, a chuckle in his voice, but a kind of acerbic miserabilism to go with it. It's Rory <laughs> Dollard. Welcome back, Rory. Thank you. I'll give you the chuckle there already, but the, the miserabilism is yet to come. I think there's going to be plenty of chance for it to happen because today we are unsurprisingly going to look back on what was a, I say an epic test match. I don't know if you can have an epic test match that contained the, the third shortest number of balls that an England side has faced at home in its history, exceeded only by the 1888 Lords Test, which I didn't attend, contrary to uh, to rumour, between England and Australia. And the 1995 England-West Indies match at Edgebaston, which was played out on an absolute terror track. Uh, Lords was not a terror track, but England managed to survive just 82.4 six-ball overs. It was the eighth shortest test match played on English soil in its entire history, and it resulted in a massive win for South Africa. So today we are going to look at uh, three specific areas of that game, uh, starting with South Africa's performance, uh, how they steamrolled England, um, Stokes' captaincy, which had some intriguing aspects, it has to be said, and, and many a talking point, and what, if anything, will change with the upcoming second test match taking place at Old Trafford later this week, starting on Thursday. So to kick off, those are the raw bits of data, Rory. Um, what? How on earth did South Africa do that? I mean, it was a wonderful bowling performance, but to bowl out England twice in 82.4 overs, is that English failings? Was it South African genius? Combination of the both? Was the, was the wicket a terror track? What did you make of it? <laughs> yeah, I, I'd like to start by saying England... Are living up to their promises, they told us they were going to come off the rails. They insisted, in fact, they didn't even they left they left absolutely no room for doubt that it was going to go wrong. They were they were quite um, enthusiastic about the fact that it was heading heading for the wall at some point, and we reached it uh, the first time uh, of asking against South Africa. So they were clearly a step up on the opposition that we've had over here in England so far. Not in terms of pedigree, because. That New Zealand team, that India team, the attack certainly are excellent, elite, elite teams. But they were both, for various reasons, not quite at their at their best. And this South Africa team turned up and they gave a super account of themselves and actually really played up to up to their ceiling, really, in terms of what they could expect to do in the first test of a series over, overseas. Kakisa Rabada was man of the match, player of the match, I should say. Arguably, Anrik Norkia's six wickets and when they happened and how they happened, you could argue were just as, if not more important, supplemented by uh, Lungi and Gidi, who in the second innings sort of dusted off the rustiness of the first innings, which he only bowled five or six overs. And then Marco Janssen. I mean, he's the fourth fourth seamer. He swung the ball a mile. The, the, the over that he bowled, if you can call it that, to James Anderson I mean, Graham Pollock would have struggled to get an edge on some of those deliveries. The ball was swinging an absolute mile. Uh, the last wicket was sort of emblematic, it seemed to me, of the complete control that South Africa had when their fourth seamer comes on, starts a ball at leg stump, it swings past the flailing outside edge of Jimmy Anderson's bat. It's interesting when he plays that drive, incidentally, that he plays a horizontal bat shot, but he actually turns about 90 degrees, so he's only playing it with his outside edge, which gives him even less chance of hitting it. And then it just clipped the leg stump pretty much 
a, a mirror image of the ball that actually did for, for Joe Root, only this time to the left-handers. And we got to see what it looks like <laughs> to clip the leg stump uh, rather than look at the Hawkeye image. And it, it was just, I, you know, you were struggling, scratching your head to think, is any base uncovered here? And I haven't even mentioned Keshav Maharaj, who picked up those two crucial wickets ones, before yeah. lunch, bowled very tightly, allowed... He allowed Elgar to rotate his four-seamers as if he really needed to. Because they only bowled for 36 overs. <laughs> they hardly needed any rest. It, I mean, it kind of struck me that there, there must the have been... perfect all-round attack? Absolutely. And, and there must have been directors of cricket and chief execs at, at county cricket clubs up and down the country cursing Brexit. Because in any other tour of recent vintage, they'd have been whipping out the Colpack contracts. Marco Janssen would be on a four-year deal at Hampshire before we could even say innings <laughs> defeat. He'd be there. He'd be signed up. No problem. <laughs> so the good news of South Africa is that those routes are, are not going to be available to these guys, but we, we all know there's, there's plenty of, of other ones. And actually that's, that's another thing that I thought watching this test match was it really felt like because the future tours program that's had much, much discussion in this week sort of came out in and around this first test. Didn't it feel like, South Africa with the good guys, like in a way that not, not, not man versus man, 11 versus 11, but as two systems up against each other, the cricket, the generic cricket fan needs to be pulling for South Africa to, to do this kind of thing and, and to, to pull out this kind of result. Because looking at that program that, and, and that, what it says about test cricket and what it says about test cricket in places that aren't England, Australia and India... The idea that we could look at an attack like that with its skill, its quality, its variety, and think that they're being asked to diminish themselves as a test nation and or, or come begging for the chance to be top of the pile, which they are right now in the World Test Championship, just seems it was a really, really timely, given the, the schedule and, the, and when, it, when it dropped in the calendar, it was a really timely moment for South Africa to come and say, remember... We are really, really good at this. You should really kind of want to see a bit more of it. Yeah, so to be clear to listeners, um, I don't think South Africa have got more than a two-test series in the in the Future Tours programme, which is scandalous. Now, of course, countries can, if they want to, schedule extra test matches. Um, they're not due to come to England. And given the history of brilliant series between England and South Africa, it's one of those things where if you look at the results since South Africa's readmission, um, the away side has won more often than the home side, which mm. is it shows just how close these two sides are, how tightly matched they are. And that's are. the rarity. That's the that's the, mm. the golden mark in, in Test cricket, isn't it? It's winning away from home. And these series, really, they, they put that on the table, which people are desperate to see. Well, absolutely. And it's it's sort of heartbreaking, but it is the way, you know, it's, it's the way our money's going. It's the way the game is going. We're kind of lumbered with it. Uh, unless we can sort of lobby for South Africa to get more test matches. But, you know, a really great bowling lineup, but their batting has great fragility as well, I think. And uh, had maybe England have won the toss, perhaps had been bowling on that first day, that could have been not necessarily a different outcome. I think South Africa looked looked really up for it. And the war of words that took place beforehand yeah. was really revealing, wasn't it? Dean Elgar... Uh, very much talking about how you've got to play the game in a certain way. But I do wonder, Rory, if actually South Africa just play basketball, but they play it with bowlers. You know, essentially, yeah. England England focus on their strength, which is their counter-attacking batting. And it didn't come off in this test match because 
Root and Bairstow were both victims of absolute pearlers. Possibly the ball of the match to get rid of Joe Root in the first innings, one that swung, shown to just clip the edge of leg stump. And, you know, Johnny Bairstow getting a 93-mile-per-hour full ball when he's just walked yeah. to the wicket. Uh, these are bowlers, incidentally, just as a sidebar, who hadn't had any warm-up. You know, we talk a lot about how Matthew Potts looked a little bit undercooked and Anderson and Broad were they a bit rusty. Well, the South African bowling lineup. Most of them, apart from Janssen, hadn't played in the warm-up game against the Lions. Rabada was, we thought, potentially out of the game with an ankle injury. He bowled 19 of the 45 overs in England's first innings. They were, in theory, undercooked. But their version of basketball is to come at you really hard with their bowlers. England's version of basketball is to come at you really hard with their batters. It seems to me that they're, they're sort of arguing over a misconception. <laughs> I, I think I think Stokes actually wants... To, to be that balling captain. I, I really think that's a, a big uh, part of his idea. He just, he hasn't quite got the, the raw materials to necessarily play the way he wants to. Um, I look at Anrik Nokia going at six and over at one point or something and, and steaming in and grunting and firing hard and, and nasty. And I think Stokes wants to throw the ball to him. That's, that, that's what he wants to do actually. And he is quite, yes. a, he is quite a sympathetic bowling captain. I think he's, he, he, I suppose the, the new philosophy in terms in the field is there's always going to be slips in. There's always catches in and he's always asking them to, to get the thing done. And actually England bowled them out in 90 overs for three, two, six, you know, probably Ben Stokes takes that and thinks we did, we did roughly give or take on that pitch. What, what, what we'd like to do, but he doesn't have wood and Archer and, and stone even perhaps, and, and I think he he's having to to manufacture it through bluster and a bit of bluster and blow because he hasn't got the the really really quick aggressive nasty ballers and he ends up you know bowling those long spells himself I suppose but it's interesting I think isn't it to see that we've got these two culture clashes potentially and in the first innings England went at three point six six and over then South Africa scored at three point six five and over. It's almost identical, <laughs> uh, and and we 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 talked ourselves into this idea that that Dean Elgar was going to suck the life out of you know deflate England's balloon, and they scored at virtually an identical rate over the course of the innings. Yeah, well, let, let's move on to Stokes's captaincy because you know we'll have more time to cast our eye over South Africa when we preview the next test. But you're dead right. But Stokes's captaincy was what allowed them to get at three point six five and over, and there was a lot of head scratching in a lot of boxes and in the media centre down below at when you've got two quite scratchy left-handed openers. I mean, Sarah Irvia uh, played a fine, fine knock, a crucial knock in the end, but you did wonder where his runs were going to come from unless there were five slips and acres of space yeah. outside the off stop to allow him simply to push the ball into that gap. And it was as if Stokes was saying, well, the, the normal shibboleths that he has worked under, the captains that he has played under. Stokes talks about little else other than shibboleths, I must say. And that, yeah, it's his favourite <laughs> word. But at, at 138 for one, indeed 148 for two, with South Africa 17 runs behind England, I was looking at a field of five slips. Now, Root, uh, Cook, Strauss, um, pretty much any England captain of the last 20 years would have been bowling dry. They'd have been saying, right, what are you going to do? How are you going to score a run? Stokes is so so fidgety. It's almost like he has ADHD. He just, ha if something hasn't happened, that ball, something has to happen to the next ball. Now, I actually think that 
you're right. I think in the in the greater scheme of things, you end up at the same place, only a bit quicker. You end up with South Africa bowled up with 326 in 90 overs instead of bowled up with 326 in 120 overs. Mm. So um, not great if you bought a ticket for Saturday, but absolutely fantastic if you're watching. But at the same time, it, it, it is baffling. I mean, the the five slips that allowed Marco Janssen and Keshav Maharaj to go at 10 and over in the last hour before the close. And that was sort of, I mean, England, had, I think, had lost a game through South Africa's brilliance with the ball. But you did wonder when you're watching that, could you not have restricted them to two and a half and over in that last hour? Bowled a bit more Jack Leach, have the new ball the next day. Anderson and Broad, start of a new day, new ball. Um, pick up your five wickets, concede a lead of 100 instead of 160. That would have been the prudent way to have gone. But Stokes cannot bear to be out there without something happening. I was watching that and there was a change in the field every couple of balls. There was also, Rory, something that was reminiscent of the great TV miniseries Bodyline, which was that I was turning to Vic Marks and saying something, then I looked down and it looked like someone had just thrown up 11 cricketers onto the outfield because there was a short long leg, a long short leg. <laughs> there were three mid-wickets making an isosceles triangle. There was a backward point. There was a fly second slip. At one point, there was a cordon of fly slips, but that's a, that's another matter. Never seen such a thing. Um, and what had happened was that Stokes had basically sort of clapped his hand and gone, right, Harold. And it, although he was the Harold, in this case, you know, Harold Larwood. Yeah. And everybody knew where to go. So this isn't just a formless plan. It is a detailed plan in which the fielders know where to go and what the expectation is of it. And I'm struggling to argue with it, even if it looks mad. Yeah, he wants it. It's like we said even in, in the previous uh, pod. He, he wants, not only does he want, he's, he has, the game has to be advancing. And it, and it can advance against them because at least then they know what they're up against. You know, they, they, they do want to find out the end game England don't they like they they want to I don't know they're not going to watch the credits on Netflix this England team they skip into the next episode every time probably halfway through the previous one they just they want to find out where the setup is because because that's where they there are this team want results and they know they're going to lose some in the pursuit of winning them and they want to find out what it's going to take to win a test match and if that means the game gets away from them a little bit well they, as I said they, they got South Africa out in within 90 overs and they probably just think they probably think that part of the game didn't go so badly for them. And we can look at it sort of in the cold light of day and they, I'm sure, will because they have lots of people who are paid to do that. But they'll look at it and, and I don't I don't think they'll look at that second innings, the South Africa innings, and, and think that's where the game disappeared from. And they'll say, that probably functioned. And, and clearly people within that could have done better. Some of the bowlers weren't absolutely on it. Stokes did really well, particularly. Some of the bowlers weren't quite where they could have been, but... I don't think England will, will revise that and suddenly come away with the idea that they let the thing go. I don't think they believe that. I think I think some of the things that had a bit of teeth gnashing and head scratching, they'll just say, well, catch up. That's what we're doing. Yes. I mean, I, I, I do think that there's a, an incredible inflexibility to what looks like a flexible approach. It's, it's so far as you see a whole load of different plans, but actually they're quite inflexible in the sense that when England did get to that second new ball, um, and they got there, with, I'd say fortuitously, Rabada was out to an absolute stunner of a catch by Stuart Broad, uh, which meant that they got that early wicket on the third morning, and we are all going right. So, you know, in two overs' time, Anderson and Broad are going to take the new ball, they're going to nick off the uh, numbers 10 and 11, and away we go. 
Instead, we had to wait for sort of 50 minutes. We had to wait for Stokes and Potts to get exhausted before Broad and Anderson were allowed. Well, Anderson didn't even come on in the end, did he? But allow Broad to come on and hang it outside the off stump and nick him off. And they might think, in the exactly in the cold, harsh light of day, we could probably have gone to that plan sooner, like the moment the new ball's available, because we've got 1,209 wickets, many of them with the new ball standing there, currently unused while I'm wanging it in. But... Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You, you get to a certain place, and uh, which was probably the same place. And actually, it could have been very different in the uh, the, the first passage with the new ball uh, in South Africa, the beginning of South Africa's innings. Ball beat the outside edge a couple of times, a few absolute perlers. Uh, but I thought Alistair Cook summed it up, really, England's bowling attackers. Um, he wanted to start a new podcast called Jaffers and Junk. <laughs> because the, in between bowling absolute Jaffers, uh, for example, Matthew Potts, a bowler who was startling in his accuracy and parsimony in the first four games he played was serving up some pretty horrid pies and he looked basically rusty he, he looked out of the groove which was an issue that it's, it's an issue that English cricket has had for a couple of seasons now because of the way their red ball cricket has set up to play a whole load of cricket yeah. before June then they look on it and then they don't play any red ball cricket until August and then they're off it this incidentally will not be a problem next year Potts did play a couple of games in the 100 and yes he did yeah it's like it's like it's he's maybe just catching up to where where his his game is. It's you know, we can get onto the makeup of the team for the next game, but it's not as though he went and got everything and changed his lines and lengths to white ball lines and lengths. I'm not I'm not sure he actually got that part cracked either when he went over to the Northern Superchargers. Um, another thing though with Stokes' captaincy, I think it's worth a little reflection. Is I heard Steve Harmison on uh, Talksport, and he's a you know, real. Durham guy, you know, he's happy to go into bat for these guys. And he sounded the alarm about Stokes balling himself into an early retirement. Mm. And well, he's having to do that, Rory, because he hasn't got any, any he hasn't got somebody who's, who can bowl to his plan. And there's no actual sign of anybody becoming fit in the near future. Exactly. I mean, what on earth are they going to do in Pakistan if that's the plan? Because they're going to go to a bouncer barrage after about 25 overs on a flat deck in Raul Pindi, and Stokes is going to have to bowl them all, unless, you know, uh, Mark Wood, Joffre Archer, or somebody of that ilk is yeah, back. And that was like it, sort it? of the stark, well, that was a stark contrast, wasn't it, between the two sides, was that extra pace. But look, you've mentioned it, let's move on to selection. Um, it, it strikes me that we, we could break this down into two very distinct, well, three actually, I'm going to throw in an extra concern, um, batting, bowling, and keeping. <laughs> so, yeah. Apart from that, it's quite simple. <laughs> yeah. Well, I preface this by saying that I wouldn't be at all surprised if there are no changes whatsoever. But let's break this down into the three parts. You were a staunch defender yeah. of Zach Crawley. You made the case for him to stay. Now, I just want to I want to make an observation, and I'm conscious that I might be completely wrong. But I was on commentary when Crawley was out, LBW, sweeping a straight ball. Don't sweep a straight ball. Not just before lunch anyway, from the left arm spinner. Put his size 12s down the pitch, swept across the line, was given out, and he just walked off. Now, I think Alex Lees attempted to have a conversation with him about whether he wanted to walk off or maybe go upstairs. When they did go upstairs, I mean, they didn't go upstairs, but when we saw what Hawkeye said, uh, would have shown, the ball was clipping middle. He would have retained his review. He would have been out, yeah. but it was an umpire's call. And he just looked to me, Rory, like a man who actually had had enough. Now, 
I, I am very, very wary of doing psycho babble because what the hell do I know is going on inside Crawley's head? But it was unusual because a lot of people plead for the second chance. You know, they're going to Lee's and going, oh, can you tell me that I can be saved? Mm. And I think Lee's might have actually been trying to help him save him. Yeah. But no, I'm off, I'm done. That's what it felt like. The last time I remember seeing someone that I had that really, really strong feeling that they were not only ready for the, the call, but putting themselves, you know, putting themselves out there to, to receive it was, was Adam Live. When he finished in, it, the last time he walked off for England, he took a really long look around. And I, and it, you know, he hadn't, really? I don't think he got yeah. many but I just remember thinking, he's ready for this. He, he, he ready for, for this call to come. And if Crawley is there, then it's, it's feels out of character because he appears out of all these guys who've tried this pretty unhelpful, unthankless unthank, task really of opening the batting in England. He seems to be able to wear failure pretty lightly. He, he's, he doesn't, hasn't previously seemed to get on top of him and, and worry him. If, if that's changed, that's the, that's kind of the red flag that might persuade England to, to make that switch. But betting man, I think he walks out to bat at Old Trafford. I think they're not ready. And I don't, well, I mean, they haven't got, the fact that they, ha- the fact that they haven't got an opener in the squad is a pretty big tell. Like, you know, their poker face isn't great because they haven't retained <laughs> another opener. So if you're, if you're expecting England to go all in on Harry Brook to open on test debut, ah, geez, it feels like a long shot. It, it does feel like a long shot, you know, but the thing is with, with this setup and with this desire to be on the front foot the whole time, it's a, it's a shot that I think, I've, I've got. A, I would give it a sort of thirty percent chance. The reason being that I think they really do want to get Harry Brook into the lineup somehow, and he can't slot in at three, four, five, or six because they've given Pope the extended run. He was top scorer in the first innings with a pretty accomplished seventy-three. Um, obviously, Root's going nowhere. Obviously, Stokes going nowhere. Obviously, Bairstow's going nowhere. So, how do you fit Brook in? Well, there's two ways of doing it. One is he opens, which is an unfamiliar position for him. The other is that Bairstow gets given the gloves in place of folks. Now, the issue I'd have with that is that Bairstow's just found a great run of form. You know, he has never scored a Test 100 after keeping wicket. So if England bowl first and he keeps wicket, he's never scored a 100. If England bat first, he might score a 100 before he's kept wicket, but he certainly won't get one in the second innings. That's that's what the, the numbers tell us. Now, Numbers are nonsense. We know we've seen a load of them obliterated over the course of this summer. Uh, but do you think either of those might be a possibility that you squeeze Brook in anyway? And folks, just having a little bit of a scratchy run with the bat. And he's also up against very, very quick bowling. And that has looked like it's unsettled him a little bit, even if his yeah. glove work's been fine. Yeah, I mean, well, the the, the appeal of Brook now is is overwhelming because he he's in this run of form and it's extended. It's been good year last year in various scenarios, formats, and now it's exceptional this year and he's averaging 107 or whatever. And he's got 140 against this South Africa team, if if not the same attack. The the idea that you open the batting with him, it's a little bit of a funky plan. And I could have seen them entertain the idea by opening the batting with Harry Brook in the Lions match, because it was apparent mm. that that's where the slot was. We know, as you say, three is locked now, four is locked, five is locked, six is locked. So they knew that by their own decisions and by their own selection, that the possible vacancy was up at the top. 
So when they pick that Lions match, they are picking two openers. If they had given Harry Brook a shout in a game that was ultimately not a first-class match, not going to count against him, seems strange that they wouldn't have a look at that. Because if he goes and gets 100 then, then it's a, it's a, walk, it's a walkover decision, isn't it? He, he, then you've given him an outing yeah. and, and you've got a little bit to work with. To bat him at, I think he batted at four, did he, in the Lions match? To bat him there and then, and then throw him up and ask him to open... It asks. It looks like it's asking for trouble. the The idea with folks appealing in a different way, and, but I think England can only get there by demystifying the idea of dropping someone because this team yes. hasn't. This setup, Stokes and McCullum haven't dropped anyone yet, right? They've. I think that's right. Yeah. Basically, Parkinson is the only person, and he he was left out of the squad having come in as a concussion replacement, but they haven't dropped anyone yet. Now. They could demystify it and just say, yeah, Folks is still the best wicketkeeper in the world, as Stokes has gone out of his way to say two or three times. He's he's done it unprompted. He is he's one of the players, Folks, that Ben Stokes has, has picked out to pump his tires up hard. But but he could he could demystify the whole thing, especially given the fact that we're going to Pakistan and they're gonna to have to rebalance the team anyway. He could just go, yeah, Ben Folks still the best wicketkeeper in the country. Great option. Just, just fancy re- restructuring this side for a, for a couple of tests against this South Africa team, and he could he could suck some of the heat out of it. The the more they don't change the team, the more a dropping feels like a cataclysmic event yeah. or or a, or a final yes. judgment on someone. And you know, moving at this point, and and yeah, it doesn't look like Fox had quite a nice start to the summer with the bat. He was quite calm, and and he has largely overperformed, I think, against what people expect him to do because he gets talked down a little bit sometimes. But yeah, get, getting Harry Brook in is becoming a pressing concern to, to, to see because he, he is, he's yeah. a potential. The way, he's, the way he's coming in with such confidence is, is becoming an issue that's going to have to be talked around and, and they might have to think of some creative ways. If not Brook to open, the two lads who opened in the Lions were Sibley and Jennings. And they're not in the squad Interesting, at the it? moment. Yeah, but if that's assuming that these guys Stokes and McCullum have their fingers in the pie on all levels, you would have to think they are the next two they're thinking about. Because if they're not the next two they're thinking about, what were they doing there? Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Now, um, time's winged chariot is is passing quickly, so the last selection I want to give to you. Um, you don't look much like Ed Smith, but try and inhabit the, the mind of former yeah. selector Ed Smith. Or, or James Taylor, either. I don't mind. Because okay. no one knows who the selectors are at the moment. It could actually be you, for all I know. So, <laughs> the bowling. Now, the issue with the bowling was was clear. We've discussed it already. It lacks pace. It has done. Uh, there's a perennial question mark over Anderson and Broad. But I think the biggest concern was Matthew Potts, simply because he had such a great start to his test career. And it was founded on the great, noble, eternal verities of line and length. Parsimony, giving nothing away natural variation, nipping the odd one back, a little bit more bounce than you'd expect. Nearly all of that was missing, and I don't blame the lad for it at all. I think the lack of cricket before that, he seems to me a bowler who needs to be bowling, needs to be grooved. But waiting in the wings is last year's sensation. If Matt Potts has been this year's revelation, then last year's revelation, to those who hadn't seen much of him, is Ollie Robinson. Now, Ollie Robinson, I promise you, I don't know if you saw him at all in the uh, Lions game, but... He's looking a lot trimmer. He's looking a lot fitter. Mm. Um, 
it looks like he'll have his net back and he is an incredibly effective bowler. I mean, his numbers are ridiculous and they were terrific in test cricket last year. It doesn't give England any extra pace. If anything, it would slow the pace down if he came in for pots. But it strikes me that they do need him. Only I don't know how he quite fits in to Stokes' bowling plans, the ones that we've just talked about. So discuss, how do we yeah. get Ollie Robinson in the team? Is it desirable? It probably is desirable, yeah. And, and again, it comes down to being able to change the team without feeling like it's a drama. So they should be able to switch broad for Robinson or they should be able to switch pots for Robinson and not have it be an anchor around their leg, weighing them down and, and discussion because back-to-back-to-back to back to back tests are now the thing. That's what England are going to do. So... Their bowling attack will have to change and it's not going to be the old story of uh, batsman fail bowlers pay because the bowling changes are going to have to be just pragmatic decisions to look after the group, freshen them up and, and stop them joining the injury list. So a bowling change in the middle of a three-match series isn't too dramatic, albeit the loads weren't huge in this test match for England because they only bowled one innings. Oh. But, but Robinson, if he has impressed them with his outlook to his, to his conditioning, to his work, and he's done what he's asked on that front, his bowling gets him in the team. That's fine. And you could look at Potts and Broad and say which one of those is going to go. And it's, you could go either way with that because Potts did look a little off. And he hasn't, yeah, he hasn't been quite right. He had that strange match at Durham as well in the one-day series where he bowled four overs and, and sort of gave in to the 38 degree heat and wasn't able to come back out. And then, he's, as I say, his 100 didn't go quite as well as it might have. So you could pull him out and let him have just a bit of time away. And by time, I mean a week. Uh, but equally, Broad could be the one because it might be that you want to give Ollie Robinson the new ball. If you want him to, to succeed, and he could ball to, to Ben Stokes' plans because he actually is going to thrive from having a lot of catches behind the wicket and tossing it up and asking yes. people to drive him. So it's not about, he doesn't have to ball bouncers and sh- sh- you know, show Ben Stokes that he can hit someone on the head. He, what he's got to do is show Ben Stokes. And it goes back to what we were chatting about just a, a few minutes ago. He's got to show Ben Stokes he can get the game moving. And he can get the game moving with the new ball, pitching it up and getting the slips in play. Yep. Very concise. I think I entirely agree with you, Rory, much to my great disappointment. Um, we're going to break off here now because we're going to be, we'll gonna we be back. We'll be back to preview the second test, um, either in person together. Maybe. We might even manage to do that because you'll be up in Manchester, I won't will, you? I will, I will. Yes, we, we, we shall be reunited. And we have a Ben Stokes documentary coming up, which I'm sure we'll talk about as well. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I've got to get into that. Um, but from Rory Dollard, the, the chief, the, the big noise at PA, <laughs> the Press Association, and me, Daniel Norcross, uh, for this edition of England Cricket on 99.94. It is goodbye. Thanks for listening to England on 99.94. Please rate, review and subscribe. You can download the 99.94 app from where you get your apps and you can follow us personally on Twitter at Norcross Cricket and at the RVD, which is Rory's Twitter and Instagram. That's T-H-E-R-V-D. Of course, Rory was going to be difficult. We'll put links up for everything we do there. Remember, if you love cricket, then 99.94 is the home of cricket audio. 
Follow them for podcasts and commentary from the world of cricket. Yep, sort of. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.